Hey, welcome to Eastlake. So glad that you made it this morning. A quick word about the setup, a little different than what we're typically used to. We have the uh, Rude Mechanicals, which is the local Shakespeare theater uh, in the building. Over the, They just did their first three performances this weekend. They have one next weekend, so the set is designed for them. So I feel like I'm just a little bit, like each week, getting a little bit closer to you, like a little bit more in your face. I'll be at the bottom of the ramp next week, and you can just, <laughs> we'll just all huddle on the ramp and make this thing work. But uh, we're so glad that you're here. Welcome to part three of a four-part series on work. Uh, for those of you who uh, just graduated, I know it's graduation weekend, or for those of you who are parents of graduates or whatever, uh, congratulations, exciting uh, to, for that. Welcome to either college or the workforce or college then the workforce or whatever. I think this is going to be a super relevant talk for you um, because uh, work is kind of a big thing. It's a, a big piece of our life. And a um, little quick story to kind of kick this thing off. My, my, uh, my wife and I experienced something that we could never have uh, experienced before. Um, well, no, I, I take that back. We, we have an older daughter, so we did, but I don't remember it. Um, I remember this one, though. Uh, we experienced kindergarten graduation this week, um, and uh, we have twin six-year-olds, and they're both at Ruth Livington Pasco, and they're both in two different classes because they wanted to separate the twins. So um, we call Jovi's class the smart class, and then Grayson's class, Grayson's class. Um, so we... Uh, <laughs> Uh, we went to, I went to, we split up, so I went to one and Kylie went to the other one, and then we switched and did this sort of thing. And I was in uh, Jovi's class for the second portion of it, and as a part of the process, Mrs. Bates, her teacher, uh, had printed out little Certificate of Achievement Awards uh, for the end of the year, highlighting all of the different kids, so, and they, they had different titles, like Most Improved and Miss Manners and uh, Mr. Friendly, Mr. Social, whatever, right? And then she would give a 20-second kind of speech on each kid. She would bring them, you know, up, and they'd say, you know, Jeffrey, come on up, Jeffrey. And Jeffrey's, man, he's been such a learner and before, when he started and blah, blah, blah. And she, I felt bad for her because I don't know how many kids in the class, like 25, it was a lot. Anyways, 20 seconds on each kid, and, and you could tell, like, she's kind of like <laughs> making some of this up as she goes, which is great. Like, you have to at that point, right? She's like, Kevin, Kevin, come on up here. Kevin... Uh, reminds me why I like rosé. So thank you, Kevin, for having, you know, uh, take a seat. Uh, and so there's, a, there's some of that going on. Uh, and we were probably 18 kids in. This has been going on for I don't know how many minutes. And I could tell, I mean, everybody in the room knew every kid is getting one of these. It was a matter of time before your name got called, right? Uh, but Jovi's name hadn't gotten called yet. And so I pulled out my phone in anticipation of, I could tell there was like three or four kind of papers left. So we were getting down to like the, the last few. And uh, I had my phone out and I looked over at Jovi and she caught my eye. And she did something I'll never forget. She looked at me and she gave me this face that was just like, like, <sighs> I hope I did enough to get to warrant one of these things. It was the cutest thing. I lost it. I'm like, are, like everyone's getting one of these, Jovi. Like, there's no pressure here. But she was like, oh God, hopefully, I, hopefully, I put in enough work that, that this kind of takes place and and, wor- and works for me. And uh, she ended up getting rock star reader. And uh, so then she goes up and she talks about how every time she's like looking around like, where's Jovi? She's usually in the corner reading a book, doing her thing, right? That's a little introverted Jovi. And she comes back to me and she's got her thing and I've got it on video. She's like smiling big and she goes, that's why I read books, dad, right? So then that's her thing. But uh, anyways, it's so funny because even at a young age, 
like we are being ingrained with this idea of working and wondering, even as a six-year-old, gosh, did I do enough? Did I do enough to be able to be publicly recognized in front of my peers? And I, we're comparing ourselves with so-and-so who got that award, and that feels like a really good award, and that feels like the 20 seconds that Ms. Bates had to say about that was like genuine, and I could feel that she was making it up for Kevin, but that's fine. But like Kylie got a really good one, or whatever the kids' names are, or whatever. Um, so anyways, I, I totally understand that, and uh, we're going to talk about the frustrations uh, that come along with work um, today. So uh, we've been, uh, the part of the, this whole series kicked off with this idea that um, in the very first book of the Bible, the very first book of the Bible is called Genesis, um, it was known in the Hebrew language as a book of origins, or Genesis basically just means origins, and it was pre-Abraham, it was pre-Exodus, it was, it was pre-God choosing Israel to be a people, a, a chosen nation or whatever. It was really was, and I think the, the valuable way to read it is a, a mindset of people trying to discover who we are, where we came from, and what it's like to be human. When you read the stories of Genesis, um, and I'm not trying to disparage its historicity, I think it's happened, but I, I do think... A, a big portion of, of reading it is, gosh, this is so like us. This is just like us. In the very first scene, there, these two humans are, are created and put in this garden, this paradise garden, whatever, and they're said, you can do anything you want, but then don't touch this one thing. And why is it that like, that's in us when somebody says, you can do anything you want, but please do not look at that light right there? You guys are like, what? What's wrong with the light? Why would I not look at that light, Right. We are, there's something in this, we're so inclined to do that one thing we're told not to do. And then when we're told not to do something, and then we find ourselves really wanting to do it, we begin to question the motives of the rule giver. I wonder why he said that. Maybe he's trying to keep something from us. Maybe there's something, if we do that, maybe we become like him. Like that kind of stuff that takes place in this Genesis account is not like stuff that we'd be like, okay, that's what happened. It's better to read and be like, gosh, that's like us, man. I know this thing is thousands of years old, but we find ourselves in the story. We read ourselves into this story. And the reason that this is important is because we said at the very beginning of this week, of this series in week one, that work was not given as a punishment for the decisions of the fall or eating the apple. It wasn't like you ate the apple, you shouldn't have done that, W2's for you, right? It's, it's work when everything was perfect, God gave man a job. Like here's what you're supposed to now go do. That, that is within you that you, I think that you have and I have within us, it created desire to do work, to, to do produce stuff. And that doesn't mean you love your job and love 40 hours a week and, and do this or whatever. But like when, you, when you're not working, there's like, I want to be productive in something. And when I am doing something, I'm questioning if it's worth the time that I invested into it. And we're dissatisfied at our job because there's not a lot kind of going on. This isn't what we thought we would be doing. This isn't what, isn't what we went to school for. Anybody could do what I do. And there's all kinds of emotions involved in this. And I think the reason emotions are involved is because you were created to create, to co-create, that God says that he created us imago Dei in his image, and that doesn't mean that we look physically like him. I think it's because he created, he's a creative being, and he created us to be creative beings, and we are at our best, and we are doing something that is creative. And as a result, then, work is spiritual, that what you do, and I don't care what you do, I don't care that it's not in a church, I, I, your secular job, whatever it is that you do, I think is spiritual. Your job and how you do it has eternal implications. 
whether you like it or not. God is interested in how you do your job. We are far more interested in where we do our job and how much it pays when we do it. That's what we're interested in, and he's interested in how we do it. There was an um, article that was written a long time ago in uh, uh, post-World War II, Dorothy Sayers. Um, Seth referenced it in our first message of the series, and I sent out the entire article. There's one more excerpt that I was, as I was reading through it this week that I thought was so incredibly pertinent, and it says this, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter. This is, again, this is the church's responsibility to teach you that what you do as your job is inherently meaningful and as a Christian, you have a responsibility to, as Paul said in Colossians 3.23, like we looked at last week, whatever it is that you do, do your work as if working unto the Lord. The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually to exhorting him to not be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables, that you should be good at what you do. You should be, work hard and strive hard to be the best at what you do. Not to make a name for yourself as we'll go through this week, but on the basis of this is my responsibility as a Christian to serve the work, as Seth said in week one. And as we'll see in the story today, as we intrinsically pick up throughout our career, and for those of you who are graduating, you'll get this soon enough, work can be incredibly frustrating. Because every once in a while, you'll get a paycheck or you'll get your W-2 statement at the end of the year or whatever. You'll look at it and you'll think to yourself, I've got about 40 or 50 working years of my life and I just gave one of them away for this, and there's a numerical value attached to that. I exchanged my time and my energy for this. Was it even worth that? And then the next question is, where did all of this go? Because I have no idea. And that's a different series that we'll do another time, okay? There are days when it can feel like a slow and painful death, but not always. There are days that you can definitely love what you do. So whether, wherever you fall on that spectrum, I wanna talk about the fruitlessness of work, uh, the futility of work, um, that not that it can be overcome, but oftentimes what we do to try and overcome that and how we overcompensate for the futility of work by putting investing too much of ourselves into it. So that's what we're gonna spend time on today. Um, in the garden, uh, this is the original story. This is Genesis chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. I'm assuming that you kind of have the basis for this kind of story. If you've never heard it, then I recommend going back and reading it, but I'm not gonna go verse by verse in it because I think many of you either grew up in church or even if you're not really religious, you've heard the story of Adam. You know that there's an apple, you shouldn't eat it, they eat it, whatever, right? As the story goes, they eat the apple in the garden and God shows up uh, and he says, what have you done? Well, first of all, he's like, where are you? Because they're like hiding from him because they're scared. Um, and it's like, it's like the parent playing hide and seek with the kid, right? And the kid's giggling in the corner. You're like, I know where you are, but I'm going to play along with you. Hey, where are you? Clyde, where are you? Right? Um, and you know exactly what's happening. Uh, and then they kind of reveal themselves. And then God asks him the question, what have you done? He can tell that something's wrong. And he asks him the question, have you done the one thing that I asked you not to do? Uh, and the answer is obviously yes. And so Adam responds in this way, yes, and I feel real bad about it except that he says nothing like that if you've actually read the text. You remember what he says, right? The woman, the woman that you gave me, she ate it and then offered it to me and I was really put in a spot where I had no other option. I was like, whoa, what do I do with this thing? So like, it's not really, it's not my fault. It's really her fault. And since you gave her to me, it's kind of your fault too. So like, it's, I don't know if it's your fault or her fault. It's one of those two. It sounds like you guys have some things that you guys need to work out. <laughs> You guys talk through, and I'm just a victim of my circumstances, and then we'll figure this thing out later, but you know what, whatever. That's his response, and then 
God then asks Eve the same question, did you eat of the apple that I, or the, the tree that I told you not to do it? And she goes, the serpent, it was the snake. We're all, this is so like us, right? Again, when we are caught in the consequences of our sin, we have a natural tendency to deflect and to push blame anywhere but ourselves. When we are caught red-handed and it's like, you did this, then we go, okay, yeah, I did it, but here's the reason why. Here's justification for it. And we try and place in part or in whole blame on anything but ourselves. Also like us, we tend to underestimate the consequences of our actions because as you look at how they responded, they go, yeah, we did it, but don't worry. Um, We experienced this whole shame thing, nakedness and shame, but don't worry, we made clothes for ourselves. We fixed it already in their minds. Look at us. We made these, they said they took these plants and weave these, these clothes together. So my thought on this is parents of kids, is there anything more scary to hear from the voices of your unaware children than, so here's the thing. Something bad happened, but don't worry. We fixed it already, right? Because you know, sometimes the fix is worse than the crime itself. What did you do to fix it? Well, we spilled a bunch of stuff on the floor, but don't worry. We took dad's nice shirt that was in the laundry bin. We just mopped it all up with that. Kool-Aid's all gone. It's, we're good now, right? He understands, or we fail to understand the gravity of the nature of the consequences of our sin. In fact, this guy named Alex Motyer writes this about it in a commentary on Genesis. He says this, in Genesis 3.8, there's an inadequate awareness of the seriousness of our sin. Moral perceptions are clouded and the self-centered view of values is well beneath the God-centered view. The blindness of sin is beginning to take effect from the moment of the fall. Humankind has suffered from moral schizophrenia, neither able to deny sinfulness nor to acknowledge it for what it is. In other words, it does this thing to us. It blinds us to the actual consequences of it. It clouds our ability to kind of make good judgment calls in other different areas. We've seen the downward spiral that this thing takes. The text says this, that they had shame because they were naked. It equates naked with nakedness with shame, which is another area. We'd be like, hey, I felt shame when I'm naked too. So there's again, maybe not all of us, but for some of us, you know who you are. Anyways, we read it and we think, gosh, we're just like them. When I experience shame, when I experience shame, and typically when I, I see others experience shame, my nat- natural inclination is to begin a desperate attempt and effort to control your perception of me. When we go through bouts of shame, when we're ashamed of something, we do our best to control other people's perception of ourselves. Have you ever had somebody do make a really dumb decision and immediately what, they, what do they do? They pull down their social media page, they close out Facebook. I wanna control my perception of, of what it is now. I'm not gonna return phone calls, I'm blocking things. I'm gonna... I'm going to reintroduce myself to our circle of friendship, but at my convenience. I want to control the perception that you have of me because of something that I did, because of the shame that I'm currently experiencing in this way. My gosh, it's 2019. We've been doing this for thousands of years. We downplay the consequences of our sin, and then we want to control how we look in this way. As a result, uh, they are kicked out of the garden. That's how the story goes. And they are given curses. And the curses show up in chapter three, verse 16 through 19. To the woman, he said, 
I will make your pains in childbearing very, very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. I thought that verse was really appropriate considering next week is child dedications. And we're like, hey, we're gonna celebrate your kid being born. But by the way, first and foremost, we know that that was a really painful process. So let us celebrate that joy with you together, right? So anyways, check this one out though. This is where it gets interesting. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Ooh, wow. Okay, so... There is a lot of debate. This is not a very popular, you don't see this on a lot of pillows at Hobby Lobby. <laughs> Those pillows don't sell very well. Do you know what I mean? Uh, you have to be real careful. In fact, this verse uh, can be very much abused. And, and, and for those of, uh, people who do abuse it, I just think that you don't understand kind of what is going on with this. And a lot of theologians and scholars have different viewpoints on this, as you can imagine whether, what kind of bias they're coming from. What they can all agree on is essentially this. At least, the very least, it means misunderstanding, frustration, and deep conflict and unhappiness are now the norm in interpersonal and marriage relationships. That your desire will be for harmony with your significant other, with your life partner. But what you can expect is discord, frustration, I said, but she heard, I did, and then they responded with, I messed up, she reacted, and we're never seeming to be on the same page. There's like, I, I'm so desperate for harmony, but it's so incredibly difficult in this season to be able to make this thing happen. To Adam, he said this, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce Thorns and thistles for you, thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. By the way, two or three times longer than the curse of the woman, and in it he says the ground is literally cursed because of you. That now the natural thing that produces is going to be thorns and thistles. When left by itself, what you can expect are thorns and thistles. When you come back from a vacation... You expect your lawn to be like super long and weeds in your gardens or flower beds, right? You don't come home and it's all manicured perfectly. It's better than when you left it. And if it ever is, you're like, what happened? Somebody was here. This doesn't happen naturally. Like a neighbor took, stepped in and helped out or we paid for somebody or something, something happened. That kind of stuff. Now in our natural day-to-day life, things get worse. They don't get better. It's the law of entropy, right? Things are progressively going to get worse. Thorns and thistles happen in life. People get fired. Businesses fail. Resumes don't work. Ideas for businesses that sounded good on paper completely flop. And then people start asking the question, man, whatever happened to fill in the blank which with whatever business failed? Whatever happened to P.F. Chang's by the mall? How did that not work, right? Please, we love our chains here. What in the world? Whatever happened to Six Degrees? Whatever happened to all of these different things, and the response is continually thorns and thistles. Something happened, like staffing issues, budget issues, money issues, traffic, they didn't get enough traffic, not very good advertising, somebody stole something from it, thorns and thistles of life. Listen, everything falls in that category. Imagine someday someone will say that about Eastlake. Whatever happened to Eastlake? Because 
Listen, I do not live under the delusion that this thing exists forever. It takes work to overcome the thorns and thistles of running an organization like this. For example, if we just decided, if I just decided not to show up for three weeks in a row and you all showed up and you walked in and we're like, sorry, Brent's not here, just decided not to do it. See it. We'll try again next week. We'll see how that works. You might give me like what, one, maybe two weeks of grace? By three weeks of grace, if this isn't happening and we're not doing something and all of a sudden like your kids aren't safe, right? We, we just like decided to not fill up the water stuff, coffee like get it yourself, figure out how to make it yourself or whatever else, you'd give me maybe three weeks and then you would, this place would not exist anymore. I used to go to Eastlake, but then thorns and thistles happened. You would never say thorns and thistles, but it just went to crap. That's what you would say. Listen, I, I get that. The reason it continues to work and the reason your business continues working because people work at it because we see it and it's, a val- it's valuable enough for us to invest into it. So we work at it. That's so true of everything in this way. So this ancient text that's thousands of years old, by the way, and it pre-exists before Israel, Abraham, all the kind of, well, you know, it's not, it's not a Jewish text. It's not, this comes from the Torah. This is original. This is, uh, again, making sense of who we are as human beings thousands of years prior to our existence from the earliest stages, as soon as man could even, not even write these things down, these things would be shared orally. These things would be talked around around the campfire as they shared ways that we find ourselves to be human. And this shows up, why does it have the staying power that it has? Because of the power, I think, of this insight, or one of the things that contributes to it is the power of this insight. Do you find that the two great tasks in your life, work and love, to be excruciatingly hard, Perhaps this is why. Perhaps love, interpersonal relationships are cursed. If you do not invest in those things and work hard at them, thorns and thistles reveal themselves. If you do not keep up the level of engagement and communication and sacrifice for one another, don't be surprised. This is why long distance relationships fail. Thorns and thistles. And your work, that thing you invested so much of your life in, Thorns and thistles take place. Do you want to know why that is? According to scripture, according to this this Jewish perception of where we came from and who we are, we live in a world that has been cursed in the two areas of life that we find we take so much of our intrinsic value from, our work and our love, our work and our love. And those require so incredibly much for us. And there's a delicate balance in these things too. And you felt this balance between work and family, work and family. Have you ever met somebody whose professional life is great, but their personal life is a mess? Their personal life is an absolute mess, but they're killing it professionally. And they've been able to kind of live this dichotomy of life of like, I know, you know I'm successful at this and then I'm so depressed because my marriage has suffered my kids don't know me and all this kind of stuff. And I, I, I struggle through the weekend. I drink myself through the weekend and then I just, I, I show up on Monday. But then on Monday, I'm the best salesperson on the floor. I got all kinds of awards, button badges, things. I got a, a paycheck that says I'm, I'm a valuable contribu- you know, contributor to society. People want me to be here. My evaluations are great. Listen, people don't go into job interviews thinking, you know what, I'm gonna let this job consume my life, dictate my priorities, and dominate my calendar. Nobody ever says that going into a job. Now, it happens. It happens. We experience the futility of work, the thorns and thistles that come up with that, and so we spend a gross amount of time over here, and we neglect the idea, or we neglect the reality that um, family life falls into the same requirements, 
I'm gonna have to invest that time there, but I'm so consumed over here. I wanna make sure that this works. I'm so frustrated with the futility of work that I'm gonna overinvest in this. I'm gonna react against this. I'm gonna make work the thing that really truly defines me. Nobody goes into a job interview thinking I'm gonna be defined by this job or that my perception of myself is gonna be shaped by the results of this job. Or that when I'm at work, all I think about is how life is falling apart at home. When I'm at home, all I can think about is work. So we find ourselves somewhere in this story between a lot, on one side of the road, a cursed sort of relationship structure, on this side, a cursed uh, uh, work structure, and, we, and there's a delicate balance in here, and we, we can go through seasons of our life when we're, we're heavy in one direction or the other. Now, it's interesting because the story, we're going to go, I'm gonna, I am going to go verse by verse into this next part because I think this deserves a little bit more of our attention. Um, Genesis chapter 11, so we're fast forwarding a few verses or chapters here. Um, it says this, uh, and this is, this is, again, this is um, like Adam and Eve have their kids, and their kids start to have kids, and civilization is starting to kind of form into place. And they, they fast, you can't read this like, uh, you can't read the first few chapters like, and the next year, or the next, you know, like chronologically, there's big giant gaps in here, and they don't explain how it all works. So, but from a, from a standpoint, civilization is beginning to form and kind of make itself known. And it says this, verse uh, two of chapter 11, as people moved eastward, as people moved eastward. Now, I know that that's a directional thing. I know that that can just be like a, the legend on a map that kind of tells you where to go, right? Or, or right, or, you know, whatever. But there's a, there's a symbolic thing happening here, all right? Um, paradise, Eden, is located between the Tigris and the Euphrates, probably in that fertile crescent area, modern-day Israel, productive, blessed, got all the kind of benefits of being right next to the Mediterranean Sea, so water's not really that much of an issue. The, the um, temperature, the climate is great. As, as you go east, you can imagine further away from water, hotter, a little bit more delicate of an area. It's east of paradise. As I go away from the blessing of God and being dependent on all the things that are provided for me into a place where I can make it for myself, like if I'm going to do it, it's because of my productivity and my work. That is east of Eden. So um, John Steinbeck, the American author who writes East of Eden, he writes this book talking about making it happen east of paradise, just east of paradise as we go along this direction. All right, as they move eastward, that's a, that's a, so they're trying to say something here, communicate something. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shiner and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They use brick instead of stone and tar for mortar which you've probably read that through and just flipped right to the next thing and that just makes sense to you. You're like, it's funny, that they're, that's cute that they're still using bricks, right? Um, but that was an advancement in technology for them. They had gone from stone, which is available but hard to work with and, and unpredictable, towards this idea of brick with tar and mortar that they could kind of stick together. Somebody had discovered a way of making bricks that was an advance beyond previous methods of building. It means or meant that they could build a much taller building than they ever had before. And ever since then, people with the most creative new ideas continue, even in today's times, to seek out cities to find a fertile environment for experimentation and implementation of their dreams. Let's build this city. Come, let's come together. I have this new technological advancement that can get us further than we've ever been before. But then, verse two continues, then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. There are always... These two things are always the temptations of sin-tainted work. When you overreact on one and you're like, I'm so 
frustrated with work that my response is to fully invest myself into the work to overcome the futility of work. I don't like the idea that work is futile. So I'm gonna give myself entirely into my work life and we do it for two reasons. One, to establish a tower that reaches the heavens and to make a name for ourselves. A tower that reaches to the heavens is something to point to as a sign of strength and independence, to have something to say that is something significant, that is something I was a part of building, or that is my brainchild, that is my experiment, that is my thing. When my life feels random and accidental, at least I have that. Now, I realize you may work in an industry that that kind of thing isn't natural. There are a lot of us who work in industries that you can't point. There's no widgets that are being produced, right? Uh, uh, there, there's, there's nothing. So when I drive by down through G-Way, um, there's a sign right outside of the police station, and it always has the name of city employees and then the years, the amount of years that they've worked, because a lot of times when it comes to city employee stuff, when you're dealing with permits, it's just paper pushing, man. It's just emails. It's just something. There's nothing to point to and be like, I did 76 permits this year. Look at that. Look at that pile of permits I approved. Isn't that amazing? Right? We don't do that. Uh, when you're a teacher, we have a unique representation of teachers at Eastlake, and I'm not exactly sure why, uh, but over-representation in terms of, not, not like that's a bad thing. I'm not like, teachers leave. No, I love teachers. But, uh, and this is a great week for you. This is your last week. Congratulations. Um, uh, but you, it's tough being a teacher. You, you, you don't, like the kids get older and they graduate and you don't qualify your job with, I graduated 27 students this year. Isn't that amazing, right? It's really hard to quantify that. And if you didn't have somebody rich and famous who like got a Nobel Peace Prize that comes through your class, then your thing to point to after years and years of service is nothing more than, I've been a teacher for 17 years. We do it in this like quantifiable time thing. I met with Megan in between services, who is a teacher, and she's like, that is very, very frustrating because it has nothing to do with the quality of my work. There's, there's been some times where, you know, you're in this weird environment where, yes, but what I'm doing is I'm, I'm investing into these kids in a significant way, and I know other people who are just mailing it in, but they've been doing it longer than me, so they get paid more than me, and it's like this weird social dynamic. What do you point to? To say, that's something I did. Look at, that speaks about the quality of work that I have invested into it. Sometimes it's a widget, sometimes it's a building, sometimes it's a tower, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's literally the amount of time that I can put in, and there are all kinds of unique, frustrating things that come along with that. Why? Because work has been cursed. It's, there's a futility to your work that there are seasons you go through that you really genuinely feel this. Or to make a name for ourselves, to construct an identity for ourselves uh, as a result of work. I was uh, riding with a, a friend this week, Doug, and uh, he's in between jobs right now, and that's part of like the, his line of work. He does like contract work, so it's not like, um, you know, he's freeloader or whatever. It's like, it's just like this weird and, it, and it's like this, in this, in my career, this has been kind of a repetitive thing. I never have had a job where it's like you just ongoing work and I'll give you 30 days notice or you give me 30 days notice or whatever. It's just like I do this and contracts expire. I go find the next contract and I make this thing work. Anyways, dealing with the emotions with all of this and uh, gone through some unique things in life and he's uh, 63 years old and we're driving down Gage because I told him I'd take him to lunch and uh, I took him to Costco because I'm cheap as Gabe mentioned in the video. Um, uh, this is all true by the way. Um, and we're driving down Gage, and, he, and we're looking at some of the signs of some of the business. Not like Sonic. I'm talking like there are names of local organizations started by people, right? Either their last name's on there or you know so-and-so started that business. 
And in a moment of just like kind of talking through some of this stuff and some of the intricacies of work and vocation stuff, he goes, I'm at that spot in my life that I never, I, I always thought I would have my name up on a building somewhere, someday. When I got into this line of work, I thought, someday I'll run my own business. I always thought, I, I, and, and he's like, I realize I'm 63, my name is never going to be on the side of a truck. It's just not. Like, it's not the, he's like, I, I always had this dream of, of going and watching my kids play Little League Baseball. And the name of my company on one of those banners or placards on the, like, the outside wall of the fence and being like, proud of my kid, but then also kind of like, see my business out there? You see that? See what I did there? Like, and I, and I realized, and I, as I was talking this and working th- through this stuff with him, and I said, I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing, Doug, because I think that that can be something that we overinvest into. This is this idea of, we'll make something great. And if it's not something we can point to, at least we'll make a great name for ourselves. Work is cursed, it's futile, but we can overcome by doing these things and making a great name for ourselves. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that they can make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. They bring in this community aspect. We're going to do this. We're going to overcome the futility of our work, and it's going to feel better for us to do this together, which is, it makes sense. It always helps when we're not the only ones to do something, right? It helps when we're not the only ones who suck at work. It helps when we're not the only ones who are experiencing fruitlessness in our career, when we're not the only ones who are asking ourselves what any of this is for. We're not the only ones who find too much of our identity in our work. We're not the only ones who have families who know that they come in second. When you hear me talk about uh, like failures of, of this or that or, or identify or, or whatever, a lot of the times I'm trying to build rapport. I'm trying to like say, maybe this is you. And you're like, it's nice to know that I'm not the only one in this way. Derek Kidner, another commentary on Genesis, says this about it. The elements of the story are timelessly characteristic of the spirit of the world. The project is typically grandiose. Men describe it excitedly to one another as if it were the ultimate achievement. And at the same time, they betray their insecurity as they crowd together to preserve their identity and to control their fortunes. Come, let us build this thing together. We'll make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, all this is gonna be for nothing and we'll be scattered. So let's do this thing together. Back to our story. So how does God respond in the story? comes down and he smashes that building like he knocked down your kid's, you know, your little brother's Lego tower that he spent all day building. I'm just kidding. He doesn't do any of that. But you should read the story for yourself. You'll have to do it because I'm not going to finish the story for you. Genesis chapter 11. But in talking about this futility of work that is inevitable and our ability to either be wallowed up in that kind of thing or to overwork and to overinvest ourselves into it, let me give you a few parting thoughts, concluding thoughts before I get you out of here. If your own, excuse me, if you own your own business or you work for yourself, if I as your pastor could offer one bit of advice as a result of what we find ourselves in the story of Babel, of of creation, of Eden, and the curse of work, I would want you to know that you are more 
than what you just do. You are not just what you do. That is a slave mentality that the Israelites took with them out of the Exodus, uh, as a part of the Exodus from Egypt, that God institutes a thing called Sabbath to try and remind them on a weekly basis, listen, you take a day, you don't do anything that day. You are not productive in that day. I'm trying to train you to know that you are not just what you do. Probably more, a little bit on that next week. But that is a, that, I want that to be something, this is especially something that is uh, difficult for people who are autonomous in what they do for their work, all right? Now, if you work for someone, a school district, a boss, employee, supervisor, P&L, something like that, if you work for someone, please know that autonomy is not the goal and that the gravitational pull of work is always towards selfishness. Just remember, the gravitational pull is always towards selfishness, that I'm going to do this to help this company, sure, or whatever, do this thing, but like there's going to be an element of selfishness in this, and sometimes my goal is going to be, I just want to become my own thing, I just want to do my own thing, I don't want to, I want to be able to do things the way that I want to do them, and I have anybody ever say, well, you can't do that, you can't do this, whatever. Listen, your work is spiritual, God is interested in how you do it, and there are Lots of different ways that we attempt to cope with the futility of work. I think God is interested in something so much more from us and for us. These are simply our attempts at coping with the thorns and the thistles. But what we need is a new compass for navigating work, which is exactly how we'll finish the series next week, part four. Hope you come back. Let's pray. Father. Oh, man, our prayer uh, this week is to help us, to give us fresh eyes as we go into the office tomorrow or go into the, the workplace tomorrow, whatever it is, as we punch the clock, as we put on the uniform, as we do our thing. Um, I pray that in those moments where we're like, gosh, this just sucks, that we would recognize that, yes, there is a futility into our work, that we are not to... Find our identity in this. Or when it's going too well, not to overextend ourselves in this way and then, and then draw too much of this, but to find our identity in you. To realize that, yes, love and work are difficult, cursed territories and thorns and thistles come up and they require efforts and they require attention and we ask for continued success in those different areas and we recognize it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. We pray for wisdom in those areas. We ask for wisdom in discovering how it is that you want us to do what it is that we find ourselves doing. Give us the wisdom to know what to do in light of all of this. And the courage to act on it. In your name, amen.